Hello and welcome. My name is Malcolm Evans. I'm Professor of International Law at Bristol University and co-director of the Human Rights Implementation Centre in its law school. I am also the former chair of the United Nations Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture. This is Guantanamo Bay. Being a Guantanamo lawyer, it is episode two of a short series of podcasts calling for the closure of Guantanamo Bay detention camp. Guantanamo Bay was opened in 2002. Since its opening, 780 persons have been detained there. 733 have now been transferred, meaning that 37 are still held. During those 20 years, nine people have died in custody. All those detained there have been held for indefinite periods without trial. Mohamedou is a Mauritanian citizen who was detained at Guantanamo for 14 years without charge. Nancy Hollander, an internationally renowned criminal defense lawyer, represented him across much of that time. Nancy Hollander will be joining me later. But first, let's listen to an extract of the talk. I started by asking Nancy how she got involved in Guantanamo. An organization I was in, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, when we found out about Guantanamo, we had some discussions about, should we represent these people? And the rules at that time were even worse. The military, anybody, there was no privilege. There was going to be no privilege, no confidentiality. And we thought, well, we can't do this. It's, um, you know, our bar requires we have confidentiality and maybe we shouldn't be a part of any of this and give it any legitimacy. And then a friend of mine said, if we don't represent these people, they're going to get bad lawyers. That's what's going to happen. They're going to get people who don't care. And, you know, that's, that's really all it took. And I said, you're right. And other people said, you're right. And we told the military lawyers that we would do it with them. And the first case I wanted was a trial. I'm a trial lawyer, and I wanted a case that was a trial. But that wasn't happening. And then one day, out of the blue, I get an email from a lawyer in France uh, named Emmanuel Altit. And he wrote me and he said that he had heard from a lawyer in Mauritania, you know, France used to own Mauritania, so they're still connected. And he had heard that this family was looking for their son and they thought he was in Guantanamo. And could I find out? And it was very hard to find out. And my associate at that time, she's now a, uh, not my associate, she's now a death penalty lawyer and a very good lawyer, Teresa Duncan, I said, Terry, how are we going to find out? And ultimately we did through an organization called Cage Prisoners at the time. It's called Cage now. And they had managed to get a list of people and they had a picture. I said, um, sure, I'll do it with you. And I said, is, is anyone paying for it? And he said, that was a joke, right? And I said, yeah, it's kind of a joke. And I went to my partners and I said, I'm going to do this. I don't know what it will cost. And in the movie, they kind of pull back. And I think maybe one of them said, 
do you really want to get involved in this? And I said, yes. And another one said, you know, go and do it. That's why we became lawyers. We became lawyers for cases like this. And it did cost my firm, and I'm very thankful to them. I mean, we're a small firm. There were seven or eight of us, never more than that. I'm thankful that everyone said, go and do it. And that's how it happened. I said, yes. Being involved in in, in this case, what, what impact has it had on you as a lawyer? And not only your impact on you as a lawyer, but perhaps on your perception of, of the legal system, the legal process. I've been a lawyer for over 40 years. I'd seen a lot and heard a lot, but I had never, I'd never been so close to torture. And I didn't really know. I knew that there were cases. There are cases in the case books about people who got tortured and confessed. But we didn't know what was going on in Guantanamo. We had no idea. All we knew was that there were men there. They were all foreigners. They were all Muslim. None of this made any sense. None of it made any legal sense or political sense. What were they doing there? Then we found out that most of them were there because the U.S. had dropped leaflets. And I've seen these leaflets all over southern Afghanistan and northern Pakistan. And the leaflet says, turn in a terrorist for $5,000. You can imagine what $5,000 means in a little Afghan village somewhere. And so 85% of the people in Guantanamo, that's how they got there. They weren't on any battlefield. They were turned in by someone else. Um, But Mohamedou's story was so different. And if you've seen the movie, you saw how he left his house and his mother. And that's exactly how it happened. And that's exactly where it happened, because that was filmed at Mohamedou's family home, wasn't it? That part. Um, Simply. And and tragically, his mother died, and he never did see her again. She died, and we were the ones who had to tell him that his mother had died in Guantanamo. When I first heard and read what Mohamedou wrote, I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, well, maybe he's exaggerating. Maybe, you know, we don't know him. We don't know anything about him. We filed a motion um, to get his, this was, the, the, the cases weren't happening. I mean, nothing was happening. They had, the prisoners had filed petitions for writs of habeas corpus, which we have in the United States, but the government was not answering them and they were not being required to answer them. And so I was there in 2005 and the government wasn't required to answer the habeas cases until 2008 through a case called Bomidian. The, the Supreme Court said, you you got to answer these. You know, they, they got to move these forward. But for those, that interim, what were we going to do? So we filed a freedom of information request. And we asked for his medical records and all the evidence they had of torture. And they gave us the medical records, which they didn't read before they gave them to us. The medical records showed that he had had broken ribs after being on a boat. And he had talked to us about how they'd taken him out on this boat. And there was some proof right there. And the medical records showed his pre-existing condition, some sciatica and some other issues. And it was listed what, what was supposed to happen. And then it said in the medical records, but when he was taken to the reservation, they didn't give him any of these medicines. And in fact, from that, we learned that his torturers were reading the medical records or talking to the medical people and doing exactly what they said they should do, using them against him. And 
it was his medical records where we first learned this. And then the government said, well, we can't give you anything else. And the judge was about to rule on behalf of the government that all we got were the medical records, none of the torture. And they had filed what we called a motion for summary judgment. And the judge said, I'm, I'm going to rule probably for the government, but let me think about it over the weekend. And it was that weekend, two documents came out. One was from the FBI, their inspector general, and each, each organization in the U.S., um, and you have similar things here, has an inspector general. It's someone who makes sure they stay in line, basically. And they had learned that there were members of the military who had pretended to be the FBI so they wouldn't get in trouble and the FBI would get in trouble. And at the same time, another report called the Senate Judiciary Report, not the one that came out later that we don't have, but an earlier one. And it had 13 pages about Mohamedou's torture. And I called the lawyer for the government and I said, you know, you said this is all classified and we can't have it. Did you read this report? She read it and she called me back and she said, you know, I'm very embarrassed because they didn't tell me they were gonna release this and I'm withdrawing my motion. And that's how we learned that everything Mohamedou had said was the truth. And I learned that we were doing that um, to him, to others, to a man named Al-Qahtani, who's finally gonna get out, who has serious mental health issues. The two of them, the um, Secretary of the Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, specifically wrote what was to be done to them. And that's what they were doing. And frankly, it was all an experiment. The government knew they weren't gonna get the truth, but they wanted to see what this was like. What happens to people? Which is even worse than torturing to try to get information. Do you have any advice for other lawyers on how to keep going in the face of these constant obstacles and discoveries and revelations that one keeps running into, because it's not easy. It's not easy. And when I was reading the torture report about my other client, Abrahim al-Nasri, a doctor who was working with us called me and she said, don't read it all at once. You can't, you have to take care of yourself. You can't read that all at once. Read it, go out, go for a walk, then read some more. And you do have to take care of yourself, but you also have to believe in miracles. I don't mean miracles like the tooth fairy. I mean, you just have to believe that things will change in such a way that what you're doing will finally work. And I had another client many years earlier, a woman named Precious Bedell, who finally got out after 19 years. And at one point she had given up and she said, Nancy, I'm just gonna serve my time. And I said, well, you go serve your time, but I'm not gonna give up, I just don't know what to do. And the same thing was true with Mohamedou. For years, we went to visit him, I'd go, and then the next month Terry would go, and then I'd go, and Terry would go. And we just went to make sure he was okay. They were social visits, because we didn't know that he would ever get out. But you just have to keep doing it. I mean, that's what I tell young lawyers, not to give up. Lawyers have tremendous power. We have the power to affect change like other professions don't. Doctors can fix something, a plumber can fix something, but lawyers have real power. And 
It's that power that you have to embrace and use. That was Nancy Hollander speaking at the University of Bristol's Human Rights Implementation Centre in March 2022. The Human Rights Implementation Centre is one of the world's most prominent organisations working for the prevention of torture and ill-treatment around the world. Please use bristol.ac.uk slash research hyphen Guantanamo or the link in the podcast description to find out more about this work. And now we move into a discussion with Nancy so you can hear more from her directly. And how did you feel when you discovered the true nature and extent of what was going on at Guantanamo Bay? You know, Mohamedou, when we first met him, was an extraordinary experience. We walked in and he stood up and put his arms out as though to hug us, but he didn't move and we didn't know what was going on. And then we saw that he was shackled to the floor. He had a leg with an iron on it. And so we walked up to him and he hugged us and said, my lawyers. Later, I learned from him that he didn't know whether to trust us or not, but he felt he had no choice. It was terrifying to think that the Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld has specifically said, do this, thanks. And I don't believe that the torturers really believed they were going to learn anything. I believe this was all somewhat of an experiment. Let's see what happens when we torture these people so we can learn it. If our people get tortured, which is, of course, even worse than torturing them to try to get a confession. Later, I learned about the black sites and with another client, and it still horrifies me to read about or talk about what the United States government did to these people. Has it changed the way you think about your own government, your own country, those that work within it? You know, how can this be? Does it change your way of thinking about those around you when you can see how such thing like this has been able to emerge over time? Malcolm, I've always known that the history of the United States is not a good one. You know, it started with ethnic cleansing of Indians, slaves, everyone who was not white Protestant. But I never believed that in 2000, 2002, 3, 4, the torture that was done was almost the same as the torture that was done in the Tower of London five centuries earlier, and that we know other countries do, but I never believed that it would be as bad as I learned that it was, and that people's lives would be utterly destroyed physically and mentally, that people would be left to die in the cold, that people would be tortured the way Mohamedou was, and uh, another man in Guantanamo, El Katani who was just released this year because the government finally admitted it did not have facilities to treat his mental illness, yet they have known that he was mentally ill from the day he got there, and they tortured him just like they tortured Mohamedou without any care. Someday I would like to find a doctor who stood by in the black sites and watched while people were being waterboarded because the instructions were that a doctor had to be there, not a corpsman, 
but a doctor with a trait kit in case they had to revive someone. And these are doctors. There were doctors in Guantanamo who stood by and allowed this to happen. It's and this, of course, is in clear breach of medical ethics, isn't it? Medical ethics, yes, in clear breach of every treaty the United States has ever signed. And of course, we have to talk about Colonel Couch here because he was the prosecutor uh, assigned to prosecute Mohamedou. He was a Marine colonel, retired lieutenant colonel, and he went at it. I want to give this guy the death penalty until he saw the torture and saw that Mohamedou had denied everything until they started torturing him and was horrified and said, this isn't what we do in this country. And yet it is what we do in this country, what the United States does in this country. How do you think it was possible for the U.S. to get away with it if it has then? Probably money. I don't know how else. The U.S., when they first opened Guantanamo, they thought these people will never have lawyers. They'll never know they're here. We can do whatever we want with them. The Geneva Convention doesn't apply. As you recall, it was considered, quote, quaint. And yet it leaked out that they were there. The same thing in the black sites. But they had the government and the CIA and the military who did the torturing had no end game. And I heard someone say recently, if you're going to start a war, you have to know how it's going to end. You have to have an end game. They had none. I don't believe they'd ever considered what would happen if this was discovered. And the countries, it's now still classified what countries other people were in on the theory that the government, our government, made deals with them that they would never disclose. But in a couple cases, the countries have themselves admitted it. It's still classified, which also makes no sense. But with my other client, we received 200,000 euros in damages for him from the European Court of Human Rights. And Mohamedou is now seeking damages from the Canadian government. It's hopeless to ever try to get any damages from the United States. On that, I talked about getting away with it, but even if it's going to be difficult to get damages, do you think that, shall we say, the United States has paid a price in some way for what has actually happened now that so much is now known about this? I do think the U.S. has paid a price, although other countries kowtow to the U.S. so much that it's hard to know. But there were Americans killed by others saying, you can do it in Guantanamo, we can do it too. There are other countries who said, if the U.S. can torture, we can too. And what's the response to that? There is none. We'll come back to further aspects of the book, the film, Guantanamo Bay, and the question of torture in subsequent podcasts. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Malcolm. If you've been inspired by the conversations in this podcast and want to find out more about the torture prevention work at the University of Bristol's Human Rights Implementation Centre and the role you could play as a researcher, as a student or as a potential partner, please use bristol.ac.uk slash research hyphen Guantanamo or the link in the podcast description.
to find out more about this world.